0: Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Obik Roy, president of freeop.org. We talk about healthcare in the United States, the history that got us to the system we have, and why it's so expensive. Ovik also tells us about his journey and his interest in Bitcoin. Ovik Roy, how's everything going?
1: Hey, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. This is so cool to be in this new setup. (laughs) The studio's gotten way fancier since I was last here.
0: Oh, way, way fancier. You know, um, I'm actually borrowing Marty Bent's studio. When I was here, it was just like a table
1: and two microphones. And now he's got like this logo and carpeting. It's just kind of you know,
0: yeah, I, the it was getting it, very fancy, you know, I, well, I mean, uh, I think Marty's the one that's getting fancy. I'm, I'm just here for the ride. I get yeah. to use his studio. You know, he's, it's all his decor. I did put my books up here, yeah, but that's yeah, about good. it, you know, yes. uh, but, but Ovik, um, I, I, I uh, brought you on because of course you're part of an important organization. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about what free op is and what, what you do there and everything else? Sure. Thank you. Um It's,
1: Uh, The long name is the Foundation for Research on Mm -hmm. Equal Opportunity, which Mm -hmm. is obviously a mouthful. So we call it FreeOp, F R E O P P dot org, and we started it in 2016. And it's a think Mm -hmm. tank Mm -hmm. um, in a in a very traditional way. Like there are a lot of think tanks out there. People might have heard of, you know, the Cato Institute or the Hoover Institution or Heritage or Brookings. It's we're in that model, except that we're a 21st century think tank, Mm -hmm. um, and our mission is very different. Our mission is, in a sense, to achieve progressive policy outcomes with uh, what we might call uh, economic freedom. Mm. Uh, the idea is that the uh, the greatest engine of of humanity, of equality, of opportunity, prosperity, growth, everything, mm-hmm. has been economic freedom. That has been the idea that has really driven American and world progress for our lives and for the generations before ours. And yet that idea is under... Um, is under threat here in this country, not so much because merely because you know the government is getting bigger or something like that in a kind of libertarian way, but because people have lost faith in the system, mm. and for good reason. There are lots of things you can look at about America. You can look at the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. You can look at what we did at COVID. You can look at a lot of other things over the last twenty years and longer, and say, you know what. Um, <clears throat> I'm told if this is the, if this is the free enterprise system, the America of 2022, mm-hmm. then I'm not for that. <laughs> and uh, and you can see why a lot of people feel like if that's what free enterprise is, I'm not for that because what they see is a world in which um, the system is rigged against them by mm. entrenched interests, whether it's entrenched political interests, entrenched economic interests. And so our whole thing is <clears throat> we. We want to restore that idea that economic freedom is for everyone. It's not a partisan issue. It's for Democrats and Republicans. It's for progressives mm-hmm. and conservatives. And um, and have it make a difference for many people who are struggling with whether it's the rising cost of health care, the rising mm-hmm. cost of housing, challenges of getting a good education, having a fair shot in the criminal justice system and being able to protect yourself from inflation. <laughs> um, and, that, and those are some of the areas among many that we work on. And we, um, <clears throat> we've been interested in Bitcoin for a long time, mm. but kind of held our fire for a while because <laughs> there, was, uh, there was a lot of other things going on. And also the, the intersection between Bitcoin and, the, and Washington, the public policy sphere, yeah. and our particular mission, which is we will only work on something on a particular area if we are convinced that there's a pro-economic freedom or pro-liberty idea Mm. that can also meaningfully improve the lives of Americans whose incomes or wealth are below the U.S. median. Mm. And for a while, with Bitcoin, there wasn't a clear policy angle other than just leave it alone, right, (laughs) let it do its thing. Mm -hmm. But we've gotten to a point now that because Bitcoin's gotten to the size where it is attracting the attention of Washington Mm. and there are other uh, crypto projects, shall we say, that are antithetical to Bitcoin that are also being actively considered in Washington. Uh, and we have now inflation at a, a kind of a crisis level relative mm-hmm. to our lifetimes, yours and mm-hmm. mine, that uh, it's it's time for us to get involved. So I I spent much of 2021 writing a 6,000-word essay that I got published in National Affairs called Bitcoin and the U.S. Fiscal Reckoning. National Affairs is a quarterly policy journal that's widely read in washington and i really wanted to write something for that audience about Mm. okay you've all heard of bitcoin but here's why you need to take it seriously and not merely think of it as something for computer geeks and Mm -hmm. you know anarcho-libertarians and um the piece uh kind of you know got circulated around (laughs) including including to you and and uh and uh gratified by that of course but Led to a lot of other obviously follow-on conversations uh, in Washington and around the country, and here in Austin, where we're recording this podcast.
0: Mm. Well, so let's go back a little bit because I, I want to know about your back one. What what, uh, what was Ovik doing? Uh, you know, to up until 2016, when you actually got into, uh, you know, like creating Free up and all that. What what what's what's your story? It's a it's a bit of a zigzag. I've done a lot
1: of different <laughs> things in my life. I uh, <clears throat> my undergraduate degree was in molecular biology. My dad was an academic biochemist, and mm-hmm. he really wanted me to follow in his footsteps. <laughs> and I resisted for a long time. and then I said, okay, mm-hmm. fine, I'll I'll do it because it was really cool. It was a really cool time. I mean, mm-hmm. this 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 explosion of genomics and genetics mm-hmm. that everyone talks about today. You know, I had a front row seat to that growing up because my dad was very involved in the field and. And so that was it seemed cool. I was like, oh, okay, that I'll do that." and um, but the problem I had with it, and the reason I didn't end up doing it with my life, was that I was terrified that uh, I'd work really hard in a basement somewhere <laughs> and you know, maybe make some mo- modest contribution to mm. science, but never really do something that was like game-changing in science because like mm. some of that is luck in biology like mm-hmm. the beaker you leave overnight in the lab that turns green that turns out to be some <laughs> massive discovery you just you just never know so I was just I was just really worried that it, I was not going to be able to like you know I wasn't convinced being around all these I went to MIT undergrad mm-hmm. and there was a quarter of the faculty at that time were Nobel laureates and it's just mm-hmm. like you're, you're wandering around with all these gods walking around you're like I'm, there's no way I'm going to be able to <laughs> do anything like that so I went to medical school with the uh-huh. idea: well at least I can be a doctor mm-hmm. And and still do some research on the side, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I found myself again drawn to the to the revolution in biotech, the revolution in tech. That mm-hmm. I was uh, I went to medical school in the 1990s, so the dot com era really mm-hmm. started during uh, that period. And again, nothing. I had a front row seat to, but didn't participate, and didn't mm-hmm. go to Silicon Valley, didn't work in tech. Uh, what ended up happening instead is I got recruited by a then unknown investment firm called Bain Capital mm-hmm. to help them understand this new field of genomics and biotechnology, because there are a lot of MBAs there who knew how to read a balance sheet but didn't understand biochemistry. Mm. And uh, their theory to us, well, we can teach you how to read a balance sheet, but you can't teach us molecular biology, so why don't you come over to Bain Capital and and help us figure it out? And I'm like, wow, that sounds interesting. So I I, I got very lucky, really, in Mm -hmm. my first first job and went over there, and that led to a a 12-year career as a biotech and healthcare investor. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was incredibly interesting. I didn't e- ever expect that I would be doing anything else. I, I would have expected, if you had asked me when I was in the, involved in that line of work, that I'd be doing it today. Mm-hmm. And uh, But what ended up happening was when Mitt Romney ran for president the second time in 2012, mm-hmm. because he was the founder of Bain Capital,
2: mm-hmm.
1: he uh, and his team asked me to help uh, him design his health reform plan for the 2012 election. You remember that Obamacare mm-hmm. was passed in 2010, and uh the whole thing was repeal and replace what's the plan <laughs> and also you know there was the, we have medicare and medicaid mm-hmm. driving the deficit and the debt and <clears throat> the reason i I'd basically gotten into writing about healthcare policy because i was very concerned after the financial crisis about the mm-hmm. deficit and the debt it turns out that almost all of the growth in the deficit and therefore, therefore almost all the growth in the debt that's not interest payments mm. is driven by healthcare spending mm. and so as a healthcare investor someone who followed the obamacare debate very closely I had a lot of opinions about how we could improve uh, the healthcare system, make it better, and also more fiscally sustainable. And then I mm. felt like, God, if, if, you know, if I am I, then I was single, if I'm lucky enough to have kids someday, mm. I want them to grow up in a solvent country, and I don't know what else to do. So I figured I would just, you know, try to work on that, try to solve that problem, and. Long story short, I fell down the rabbit hole, and after uh, Mitt lost, I, I thought I was going to go back to Wall Street, but mm-hmm. then people started asking me, okay, what's your plan to reform the healthcare system? Uh-huh. And so I spent the next two years developing a plan. Like Here's, in a politically plausible way that a presidential candidate could run on, mm-hmm. here's how you would gradually evolve our mess of a system mm-hmm. into something that actually does provide affordable health care to everyone, or you know, creates the uh, groundwork or the opportunity for the private sector to, to deliver affordable health care to everyone in a way that's fiscally sustainable mm. and so solves the progressive problem of mm-hmm. there are these people who can't afford health insurance but in a free enterprise pro Liberty way where mm. everyone gets to choose their own health plan there's a lot of flexibility in how the plan is designed you have full choice of doctors and mm-hmm. hospitals and medicines and things like that that was to me the holy Grail and and working on that taught me that that wasn't just true of healthcare care mm. <laughs> that, that, it, it's not, you know, like our politics is very much this kind of idea that for my side to win, the other side has to lose. That's mm-hmm. the thinking that a lot of people have in politics. But my work in healthcare taught me that that's not that's not it's not a zero sum game. It can mm-hmm. be a positive sum game where progressives you can advance progressive values in terms of everyone having affordable health insurance, mm-hmm. while also advancing the conservative or classical liberal value of a more a freer system in which you have more choice, where it's not bankrupting the country. And that's true in education, that's true in um, uh, housing, it's true in criminal justice, it's, mm. it's true in all these areas of life where the pro-freedom argument is also one that happens to be progressive. <laughs> and so um, that, that ended up being the, the genesis of free op. The idea is that mm. we wanted to show that. We wanted to show that if you're a young person who is idealistic and wants the world to be a place where every American has a fair shot at success, that you can do that using freedom. You don't have to. You, you don't have to think that the only way to do that is for the government to control everything. It can also be freedom, actually, that achieves it in a much better way, mm-hmm. and a much fairer way, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if we want to solve these long, stru- big structural problems like the debt and the deficit and monetary inflation, uh, these are the things. These are the tools we need to use to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we've grown now. So we were founded in 2016. We're now um, almost six years old, and we have. Um, Twenty-five people. We're headquartered, you know, mm-hmm. just uh, two blocks from where we're recording this
0: uh, podcast, and uh, uh, we're uh, we're very busy. <laughs> That's great. Um, so, you might not know this, but uh, actually, one of the people on your board used to be my boss. Uh, oh yeah, who's that? <laughs> Jonathan Bush. Oh really? Uh, so he, uh, I did work for Athena Health way back in the day when I when I was in Boston. So the whole idea of healthcare being This inefficient thing. I actually learned from one of your board members, uh, Jonathan Bush, um, brother or cousin of uh, of George W. Of course, and Jeb. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, So you know, this this was a while back, and you know, one of the things that he told me is, you know, like a lot of this stuff is just completely inefficient, and like doctors are working harder than ever in order to do that. So I'd love to get your perspective on why the healthcare system is just so expensive. Uh, because there are lots of different factors that you and I know of, uh, and I, I'm sure you have even a uh, deeper understanding of what's going on there. But in your opinion, what what what's happening in the healthcare system that makes it blow up like that?
1: Uh, it's an important question. Mm. Uh, I, I'd say that there are there are two, two, two decisions in particular mm. in U.S. history that have created the healthcare system that we have. Mm. Uh, and everything else is kind of window dressing around these two critical decisions. The first critical decision was uh, a- in the immediate aftermath of World War II. So World War II happens and the young men are off to war. And the Roosevelt administration was worried that because all the young men and there were women weren't really in the workforce then, so mm-hmm. if you you lose the men, you're losing a lot of the working age population that if if your labor force, has been shrunk because all the men are off to war, then there's going to be massive competition for the workers who are left domestically, mm. and their wages are going to go up. <laughs> and that's going to lead the cost of the goods and services those workers help contribute to, to make
0: and, and, and build. So this is sort of Keynesian thinking. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of like
1: a, you know, well, I mean, like the classic Keynesian, you know, in terms of uh, policymaking is, is, mm-hmm. uh, is Roosevelt. And so it was this you kind know, of the theory of the wage price spiral, where uh-huh. the wages go up and then the prices go up, and uh-huh. that means you have to have higher wages to afford the higher higher priced goods. And they were terrified of this, so mm-hmm. they created this schedule of wage and price controls, or wage controls in particular, where literally the government, the federal government, put out a, a list mm-hmm. of if you're a barber, here's how much you can make. If you're an auto mechanic, here's how much you can make. If you're a baker, here's how much you can make, and you are not allowed to pay that baker any more than the x ex- and why cents uh, an hour mm. that the federal government had dictated. Um, there was a loophole, though, mm. in this effort by the Roosevelt administration, which was that the, the wage controls did not uh, regulate fringe benefits.
2: <laughs>
1: so crafty employers started to realize that, oh, well, I might only be able to pay you, Jimmy, my mechanic, mm-hmm. you know, three bucks an hour, but I can also offer you health insurance because Mm. that's not regulated. Mm. And so that led to this proliferation of employer-sponsored health insurance that was outside of the regular, and that was basically used to compete for workers Mm. (laughs) because you couldn't compete on the basis of actually paying people in cash. Mm. War ends and uh, the Eisenhower administration actually is trying to figure out what to do about this because now all these employers have offered health benefits and these health benefits are not being taxed because they weren't thought of as income <laughs> uh-huh. so you're getting paying you're paying income tax on your normal salary but you're not getting paid on taxed on the value of your health insurance and so the eisenhower administration the, the treasury department uh, issued a rule saying um, health insurance the value of the health insurance so if, like if i offer you 10,000 bucks of health insurance a year mm-hmm. that will be excluded from taxation it won't count towards income tax because they were really worried that if they did all these people who had been enjoying it effectively <laughs> for for free you know in terms of no taxes would get mad mm. now that had uh, several other ripple mm-hmm. effects which mm. is that once you have a preferential tax treatment for health insurance versus regular wages mm. what happens a lot more things get called health insurance or get covered by health insurance in order to qualify for the tax break. So you think mm-hmm. about when you get your car fixed, or, or think about car insurance, right? So mm-hmm. you're, you, uh, you get into a car accident, you, know, you might use car insurance to, to pay off that claim. Or your car gets totaled or stolen, use car insurance to pay for that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But if you get a little, you know, if you need gas at the, at the gas station, you don't use car insurance to pay for your gas, you pay cash. <laughs> uh-huh. right? If you need wiper fluid or you need an oil change, you pay cash. Mm. That's how health insurance should work. Insurance is Mm -hmm. designed, it's a financial product designed to protect you from gigantic bills, Mm. catastrophic financial risk Mm. that comes from uh, a particular kind of thing. So in the Mm. case of health insurance, if you get cancer, you get a stroke, you get hospitalized, that's what health insurance is meant to do, is if that bill is going to be $100,000 and you don't have $100,000, insurance should help you with that. That's the point of insurance. But the problem is that once we incentivize through the tax code that anything that gets covered by health insurance, your employer can pay for that via the third party mm. tax-free, uh, that created the incentive for insurers to cover a lot of things, the equivalent of the oil change or the, the gas at the pump. Mm. And so you had this expectation, this culture in the U.S. that evolved over several decades after the war that any kind of health care that you needed, Mm. Whether it was a normal checkup, a mammogram, a prostate exam, or cancer treatment or a you know, hospital treatment, all of that would be covered under health insurance, and you'd get your health insurance for your employer tax-free. Mm. What hospitals and drug companies and doctors started to realize is that, well, I can uh, charge more mm. because you as the worker don't actually pay me, <laughs> Right. And and it's it's not it's not just that the insurer pays you instead of the worker, but you don't even know how you don't you don't buy the insurance. Like mm-hmm. you and I, if we want to get insurance for our car, we have to buy it ourselves.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When it comes to health insurance, we don't buy it ourselves. If we work for a normal W two employer, mm-hmm. our employer buys it for us. If if I'm if I'm in a room of a thousand people at a conference and I ask, raise your hand if you know how much of your paycheck was taken out by your employer to pay for your health insurance you know like five hands will go up and it's because those are the people who run the companies or are self-employed or whatever right so it's this massive inefficiency of not only do not i not pay for the service directly mm. not only is uh, insurance paying for it instead of me mm. but i'm not actually shopping for the insurance mm. so it's not third party healthcare it's like ninth party healthcare because it's the multiplicative effect of not shopping for it yourself which then mm. leads um, the providers of the service to be able to charge whatever and know that you, as the end consumer, have no idea what you, you were charged for that service. You just know you had health insurance that was covered by someone else. Now, that leads us to the second mm-hmm. historical error, which was Medicare. Mm-hmm. So in order to pass Medicare, because there were a lot of people who didn't like Medicare, famously Ronald Reagan recorded these mm-hmm. uh, records, vinyl records, that were passed <laughs> on at tea parties where you could say, uh, or coffee clashes where you could say, hey, you know, you know, this is socialism. If you mm-hmm. if you if, if the government has Medicare, then they're going to tell doctors how to practice, and you're mm-hmm. not going to have control over your your care. Imagine that very quaint, uh, a quaint <laughs> argument. Um, but one of the things that uh, LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, did. Was he said, well, in order to make Medicare seem as non-threatening as possible,
2: mm.
1: we're going to base it off of employer-based health insurance. We're going to model what Medicare covers mm-hmm. and what it costs off of what a standard Blue Cross Blue Shield plan charges today. Mm. And the other thing he did, LBJ did, is he struck a deal with the doctors who were very worried about the government telling them what they could charge. And he said, you continue to charge whatever you want. We won't tell you what to charge. We'll just pay the bill. mm what happened next the doctors and the hospitals realized that the taxpayer was now an atm that they could draw from whenever they wanted because it's like oh i can double the cost of a knee replacement and medicare will pay Mm -hmm. fantastic i'll triple the cost Um, right and so those were the two big decisions the the tax exclusion of health uh, mm employer-sponsored health insurance during world war ii and thereafter and then medicare building on top of that system those are the two real inflection points mm. that got us to where we are. And so it's a very difficult thing to unwind because this is a system that we've now had for almost 80 years.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, and it all started with price controls on wages, essentially, right. in uh, during World War II, uh, which itself is uh, fascinating to me that like you have unintended consequence built on top of another unintended consequence, and then all of the incentives go towards putting as much of uh, the costs or uh, benefits into healthcare as possible. And then you have an entire generation growing up with that, getting used to it and thinking that it was uh, something that they really needed or the, this was the way it ought to be because that's that's how it was. So. And
1: blaming free enterprise for that, right? <laughs> it's like the, the the narrative about the American healthcare system is is it's a – free enterprise system uh-huh. or a capitalist system. Mm. Uh, and you could you could argue, depending on your semantics, that it's a capitalist system mm. in that the people who control the capital, which <laughs> is the healthcare industry, <laughs> are making the decisions. Mm. But um, it's definitely not a free market system. And mm. Americans should not be under any illusions mm. that the American healthcare system is a free market system. We actually do a study every year mm. called the World Index of Healthcare Innovation, where we look at Uh, the 31 wealthiest countries in the world by GDP per capita Mm -hmm. that have a population over 5 million. And we compare them Mm -hmm. on metrics like how free they are in terms of Mm -hmm. freedom of choice, the fiscal sustainability of the system, things like Mm -hmm. that, Um, how much access there is to affordable coverage and care. And the U.S., um, on those metrics does very poorly, really at the <laughs> bottom of the pack. The one thing that we do really well is we have a really great innovation ecosystem. Our mm. universities are great. We have the Nobel laureates, more mm. Nobel laureates than almost anybody else uh, on per capita basis. And we have a lot of entrepreneurship, a lot of biotech companies, things mm-hmm. like that. But in terms of the fiscal sustainability system, mm-hmm. we're third from the bottom. Mm-hmm. In terms of choice, we're 20th out of 31. Mm. Uh, and certainly on affordability and things like that, we're, we're not great. Quality, we're okay. We're mm-hmm. like sort of a little bit above middle of the pack, but but the, the affordability and sustainability is a real problem, and that's what got me into Bitcoin. Mm. <laughs> it was doing uh, all this work on healthcare policy mm. that made me realize how hard it was going to be to solve our deficit and debt. I think a mm. lot of people have the impression that well, you know, when when the, the when the crap hits the fan, mm-hmm. people are going to be able to get together and hash out a deal, and we're going to solve our deficit and debt mm-hmm. problems. And, <laughs> You know the problem is the debt and deficit are driven by healthcare, and mm-hmm. you can't. Uh, it's not easy to solve. I mean, we mm-hmm. obviously at, at Free op we work on it, mm-hmm. and we have a bill actually that's been introduced in the House and the Senate called mm-hmm. the Fair Care Act that does uh, make a lot of strides if it were to become law on solving these problems. But uh, it was my conviction about how difficult uh, healthcare reform is and entitled reform is. Mm-hmm. That led me to realize I need to have Bitcoin as a hedge in my life against my me failing at my day job,
0: right? And uh, fast forward a few years, then now Bitcoin is my day job too. So who yeah. knows? <laughs> well, so you you have all of this uh, experience, I guess, uh, analyzing healthcare from a variety of perspectives. I, I, I guess you were, you practiced medicine for a while. Or, I never practiced. so I went straight
1: from medical school to bank Capital. to, to bank so, capital. But, but you know, certainly. In mm-hmm. medical school, I, I saw patients and did mm-hmm. the things that medical students do to learn how to practice mm-hmm. medicine.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I'm sure you're familiar with sort of like the real weird uh, incentives that are out there in the back office and payment and things like that. Which, uh, which uh, you talk to any doctor, that's that's the thing that they complain about the most is the billing. Yeah. The billing sucks. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit more about that aspect of healthcare and how much cost that adds? It's funny i have a whole uh slide
1: deck that i uh-huh. do for doctors groups when uh-huh. i speak to doctors groups about this and basically I explain to them they're they're doomed mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> it's only going to get worse and you think they'd be, be really kind of mad at me kind of like sad afterwards but they're actually like super energized uh-huh. they're so they're so amazed because they they're in this system where to your point mm-hmm. they feel like. There are these forces that are that they don't completely understand. They're out of their control that are making their lives worse year mm-hmm. after year after year gets mm-hmm. worse and they have no agency. And somehow mm-hmm. explaining to them why they're doomed <laughs> gives them the agency to be like, okay, now at least I understand why I'm doomed, which is better than being doomed and not knowing why, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and, and what it comes down to is what we were talking about before, right? Mm-hmm. So when you have a system in which everything flows through insurance mm. and where you, the end user, the patient, the employee, doesn't actually shop for the insurance either. Mm. It creates this massive incentive for the providers of services mm. to um, to charge whatever they want. Mm. Now, the flip side is, Well, we don't have infinite money, Um, you know. You more than most people, Jimmy, but like most of us don't have infinite money, and and so we uh, we you know we as a result you know you have to have some countervailing forces in healthcare, right? How do you actually make it affordable for people? So what insurers do is they say, well, doctor, you know, Mm -hmm. doctor Song, you're 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 not going to be able to you know use this expensive drug because Mm -hmm. there's this cheaper drug available, and Mm -hmm. we got to steer you to the cheaper drug because that's how we keep Mm-hmm. insurance a little less unaffordable <laughs> than would have been otherwise, right? And so um so insurers do a lot on the back end to kinda like be like, okay, you know you don't need a knee replacement but you might mm-hmm. uh you can use this drug instead of that drug try to optimize for what is the the most cost effective treatment for a particular And sometimes you know cynics would say insurers actually try to avoid expensive treatments mm-hmm. just in general and just say doesn't matter what the medical justification is we're just gonna get a mm-hmm. welch on our and welch on our <laughs> deal uh but but all that to say that uh, doctors kind of want this autonomy to be able to say I can do. I'm I'm the doctor. He, he's the patient. Mm-hmm. I should be able to prescribe whatever I want. Mm. But the doctor isn't thinking about how much it costs. The doctor mm. isn't thinking, okay, this drug is ten times more expensive than that <laughs> drug. They're just saying, I think you should go on that drug. So I'm just going to write a prescription for that drug. Mm. That's starting to change now. But mm-hmm. it was the culture in medicine for a long time. Like I could tell you, going to medical school, ask any ask any doctor you know or any medical mm. student, ask them how many courses they took in medical school on the price of the things that they prescribe for their patients. Mm. And the answer is zero. You're never trained as a physician to consider price. You're Mm. only considering, you're taught to consider what is medically the best for my patient, irrespective of price. Mm. And that's not economic, right? Mm. In, In an economic system, you think, okay, do I really need a Lamborghini or can I get by (laughs) with just a BMW or even a Honda, you know? Like the Honda will still get me to where I need to go every day, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but in in healthcare, we don't have that discipline at all. Mm -hmm. And when you don't have that discipline, you don't have a market, you don't have price signals and therefore things get more expensive.
0: Yeah, and it's that lack of direct payment that seems to be the big problem here, especially when you are like, nine times removed from the actual cost and uh, and as you were saying like for patients like they almost see it as a right right like it's it's uh it's the attitude of yeah, yeah it's like i i you're a doctor you're supposed to heal me like like no matter how you know crazy it is like there there's no cost function or anal- economic analysis happening really until you're way, way, way more removed from the actual like yeah. care, which which is kind of crazy to me.
1: Yeah, and again, it all goes back to this this mm-hmm. World War II decision in the Medicare and mm-hmm. that's what's created that expectation, that sense of, mm-hmm. you know, I paid for health insurance, I paid my taxes that went mm-hmm. into Medicare. Now I'm a patient, I get what I want. Mm-hmm. And there isn't that understanding that actually for every dollar someone puts into Medicare, they're getting three dollars out, meaning <laughs> the re, you know, those of us who are not yet in Medicare are paying those extra two dollars, mm-hmm. and it's, it's that ratio is getting worse all the time. So this is the spiral that we're in, and it's it's a, it's a real problem. And you know, obviously, uh, there are lots of uh, official government reports that mm-hmm. walk through all this data and say, yes, Medicare is going broke, yes, healthcare is getting more expensive every year, um, but uh, but not. Uh, I would say, a lot of uh, sufficiently rigorous thinking about why mm. this has happened. And unless you understand why it's happening, you're not going to be able to solve the problem. It's just like in mm. medicine. If, if you don't understand why something is causing disease, you're, you're not going to be able to prescribe the right treatment.
0: Mm. Yeah, and uh, so, which brings us back to, for, right? like, what is the way to, I guess, more directly link the patient to the cost or to to the doctor to the cost because in a sense like what what you were saying was correct about you know, doctors don't really learn, you know, what the cost of things. They, they just go, OK, this is the best treatment or whatever. But in any economy, right, like you go to your mechanic and it's like, OK, you know what? This car might fall apart or whatever. Uh, all right. Here here are your options, right? It's OK. You can either, you know, fix everything and it'll cost like five thousand dollars and you can fix this. And, you know, it'll it'll run for another couple of years and it'll be a thousand dollars. And then uh, or you could do nothing and it'll probably break in like two weeks or something like that. And you make that decision as a consumer thinking, okay, well, this car, I've had it for, you know, 15 years or something like that. And a couple more years, that's probably good. Or, you know, oh, I, I've had, I, I want to keep this car for a while. I can't really afford a new car. 5000 makes sense. Or, you know, like, I, I don't really care about this car. It's a rental anyway. You know, whatever. Like, there, there are... Calculations that we all make, mm-hmm. uh, and that, you know, professionals or service providers help us to make by giving us options that, that, that allow us to, move, um, sort of make things more efficient and so on. And markets are supposed to optimize on those and make things more efficient. How do we do that in healthcare? Cause we, we're, we're really not seeing that very much.
1: Well, there's a couple of uh, uh, thoughts you're you're, mm-hmm. you're triggering for me. One is um, there's a famous essay that was written around the time that Medicare came out in 1965-ish mm-hmm. by a guy who ended up winning the Nobel Prize for Economics, Ken Arrow at mm-hmm. Stanford, who I think is still around. He's kind of in his 90s. He may have passed away from least recently, okay. but he's, he's definitely up there in age. But he wrote this famous paper for a, a quarterly journal of economics where he made the argument that there can be no Free market in healthcare, mm. and his argument was that, uh, uh, in particular, that because the doctor knows more than you do about your condition, mm. you know, a, a market requires there to be a symmetry of information. When there's mm. asymmetry of information, and uh, you know that you're trusting the doctor to know what to do mm-hmm. and you don't know, uh, then you're never going to be able to make a true market choice. That was his argument, mm. among others. Uh, but that. Is really doesn't make any sense at all. Mm-hmm. There are lots of things we do in life where the seller of a good or service mm-hmm. knows more than the buyer. Mm-hmm. When you uh, when you buy a house, the seller of the house knows if there's you know mold in the walls <laughs> or not. And theoretically, there are inspections to suss this stuff out, but uh-huh. they aren't always perfect. Mm-hmm. That's where actually the, the the Roman phrase caveat emptor, the mm-hmm. buyer may the buyer beware, mm-hmm. comes from. is mm-hmm. is uh, in real estate transactions. Mm-hmm. And um, it's true when we fly on an airplane, right? Mm. If you get on an airplane, you're trusting that the pilot knows what the hell he's doing, <laughs> you know, because you don't. Uh, or when you go to get your car fixed, you know, mm-hmm. like you were talking about, you don't, you, you don't necessarily know as much as the car mechanic. Some mm. people might, but most mm-hmm. people don't. So asymmetri- asymmetric information is a feature of, of, all, of almost all tr- economic transactions in life. Uh, and, and so the idea that it's somehow unique to healthcare that, mm. uh, that that's the case is not true. But that was a that was a very popular uh, essay to say. You talk to a certain type of uh, healthcare policy person mm-hmm. who's on left of center, and they'll say, "Well, you know, this is this what you and Ovik are talking about is completely stupid because everyone knows." So Paul Krugman would write for the New York Times. That this would be a mm-hmm. typical column. Everyone knows, ever since Ken Arrow published his essay in 19, <laughs> the definitive take on this topic that there can't be, um, you know, market in healthcare. Mm-hmm. And uh, those of us who subscribe to, say, a more Austrian point of view understand mm-hmm. that everything is fundamentally economic. It's about because mm-hmm. it's about human action and human choice, and um, and that's true in healthcare as well. And so uh, that's kind of an abstract way to put mm-hmm. it. The way I would put it more concretely in terms of your question is. Mm-hmm the only way we're going to persuade mm. so the problem with healthcare reform of the biggest challenge mm. with healthcare reform is that people are afraid mm. right they know the system is not great they know the system is not working mm. but when a politician says trust me i'm going <laughs> to change things around it's going to be better for you mm. you know people people kind of rear up and say well i'm not so sure i trust you mm-hmm. right and that's the biggest challenge is that the, the record of politicians in making your healthcare better is not so great, <laughs> and uh, it seems to get more expensive every year, regardless of what what whether they call the bill the Affordable Care Act or not, and and so that that mistrust or that fear that any change mm. is gonna like if particularly let's say you, let's say you have multiple sclerosis, you have mm. diabetes, and you really re- you really depend on having a, sh- a insurance that somebody is paying for on some level and mm. and all that like. You might even believe theoretically that a more market-based system is better, but you might be also worried that if your insurance is taken away from you and something else replaces it, you're gonna be you're gonna be worried that that thing that replaces it with it is gonna be worse because that's <laughs> happened plenty of times in mm-hmm. in living memory. So that that so how do you solve for that? Mm. And that's where free app comes in. I think mm. what we try to do is we try to say, let's address that. Let's address those fears and insecurities that people have by saying. We're gonna we're gonna create a market in which the insurance you have is better, mm. or maybe it's not even insurance product at all. Mm. Um, you know, you and I uh, have a friend, a friend mm. in common, who's working on a product that's not actually insurance at all, mm. right? Where you basically pay for healthcare directly, and mm. there's a, a system of pooled risk that's sort of uh, attached to that, but it's not legally or technically insurance. There are lots of ways to think about innovative approaches to. Paying for healthcare in a way that moves out of the current model, and I I think the way the way you try to solve for that is one. You create a regulatory sandbox, as as um, as Hester Pierce might put it in the context of 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 crypto, you can have a regulatory sandbox where you say okay. Most people are going to still are going to be risk averse. They're going to want to go with their employer based insurance or Medicare or mm. whatever. But for people who are open to a a different model, a more innovative model, let's give them the room to do that. Mm. It's their own choice. We're not going to force them into a different model, but if you want to choose that different model because the because the cost of it is so much lower than traditional health insurance, let's allow you to do that.
0: Kind of like charter schools or something. Kind of like yeah, charter yeah, yeah. it's very
1: similar, right? Mm. So that's a great model in the sense that you think about the old school choice debate. The mm. old school choice debate was um, the upper middle class enclave would resist the idea of people from the poor side of town sending their kids to the upper middle class enclave because the upper middle class enclave people would say, "Hey, I paid all this money to live here. <laughs> I pay all these property taxes so my kid can go to the ritzy public school." You're saying that kid gets to go to the public ritzy mm-hmm. public school too? No, right? So people felt that you were taking something away from them. Mm. Um, uh, that they worked hard to pay for and the beauty of charter schools is there's an end around around that system mm-hmm. where um, the charter school doesn't take away your ritzy upper-middle-class public school uh, but it does give those kids in uh, who need uh, additional choices the opportunity to have one right mm-hmm. so similarly here in healthcare, you're not taking away the default options that people have gotten used to but you're creating new options and if you create new options then as those options grow and more and more people try it and realize it's pretty good and it spreads the word of mouth, mm-hmm. then maybe you have uh, the av- one avenue for reform. So one mm-hmm. avenue for reform is create the regulatory room mm-hmm. for new models to emerge that can serve patients mm-hmm. better. Mm-hmm. Another model is to reform these, mm-hmm. the existing kind of default option. Mm-hmm. That's important as well. And similarly there, there are gradual things you can do. I think that, mm-hmm. that's the key is with healthcare in particular, you have to be gradual. Mm-hmm. You have to be uh, uh, incremental. Uh, so, one thing that we've talked about, for example, when it comes to employer-sponsored insurance, is what if you gave employers the options? So, right now, the default options: if you if you work for an employer that offers health insurance, mm-hmm. they pick the plan, they hand it to you, and say, "Here's your health insurance. You have no choice. <laughs> uh-huh. It's taken out of your paycheck, but you otherwise have no choice." What if we had a system where we said, "We're going to give you the monetary equivalent of that tax break"? Mm-hmm and then you go shop for your own health insurance. Mm-hmm. The tax break stays the same. We preserve the distortion that I talked about before, the World War II era distortion, but we at least devolve it to the consumer or the patient or the worker, and we don't put it in the employer's hands. That way, if you're shopping for your own health insurance, that solves at least one of the two big distortions, <laughs> right? Because right now, you're not shopping for the insurance and you're not shopping for the healthcare. Mm. We can fix that. So. Maybe you're still not shopping for the healthcare, but at least you're shopping for the insurance. That would mm. actually make a big difference, mm. and we can do that. Mm. There was a rule passed when uh, Trump was president mm-hmm. that uh, called the HRA rule, which basically allowed uh, enabled for the first time employers to take that pot of money they used to pay for your health insurance and instead give it to you to buy your own insurance on the on the market. Mm. And uh, it's 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 a relatively new rule, so I wouldn't mm-hmm. say it's 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 being tried by Millions and millions of people, but it's out there. There are startups that are working on making it easier to use, and my hope is that that's the kind of thing that, over time, can can um, again evolve to take over more of the market. We're seeing it in Medicare as well. So, you know, Bernie Sanders says Medicare for all, mm-hmm. by which he means a single payer system where the government <laughs> is the sole insurer. But the funny thing about that is today's Medicare program is not like that. Mm-hmm. In today's Medicare program, which is the health insurance program in the United States for people over the age of 65, that's uh, again a government-run system, kind of like the Canadian healthcare system. But 40% of people in Medicare are actually in a privatized, voucherized version of Medicare called <laughs> Medicare Advantage, where mm-hmm. they get kind of a basically a pot of money to buy. Health insurance from a private insurer on the open market. Mm. It's a it's a regulated market. It's not a completely you know it's not Mm. an unregulated market, but it's there's broad choices to the point where some people complain. I was helping my mom sign up for Medicare Advantage, and she had two dozen insurance choices, and she was very confused. It's Mm. like somehow choice is a bad thing, but (laughs) you know. But the fact is, there are a lot of choices, and these companies compete with each other, Mm. and the quality and the value of the service gets better every year. And so we're going to be at a point soon enough in this country where a majority of people on Medicare. Are actually getting their insurance from a private company. So if that's Medicare for all, then that might be an improvement on some of the things we do in 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 the below sixty five level. And that's the the thing about Bernie's uh, uh, bumper sticker that uh, that is kind of misleading.
0: Well, so let's talk about uh, how healthcare has essentially locked people into companies because that mm-hmm. that for me is the most sort of egregious unintended consequence is that people feel the need to work for companies because of health insurance, because of this loophole, because essentially you, uh, the big companies get all of the, you know, they, they negotiate, uh, you know, better rates and everything else as an individual, if I want to be an entrepreneur, you know, getting health insurance is extremely difficult and figuring out, how to navigate that and you know, you, you don't have the pricing power that a big company does. So it essentially pushes people towards corporate work rather than entrepreneurship, which I think may be a bigger tax on society than anything else. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on like how it locks people in?
1: Well, uh, it's an important uh, point you're making mm-hmm. and um, it's absolutely true that there are people who uh, Feel afraid to leave their job because they worry that if they leave, say Apple to to Mm. to work for a startup, that the health benefits are not going to be as generous at the startup Mm. because Apple has all this excess money they can afford to Mm. to use it that way. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why employer-sponsored insurance is such a distortion, Mm. because the big businesses know this. Mm. Big businesses like Apple and Microsoft and GE, and and Mm -hmm. they know that uh, how they keep people there Mm. instead of leaving to go to a startup. Is by larding on uh, a very generous health benefits package that that people are afraid to lose, mm. and that's why employers have not been good purchasers of healthcare. So one mm. thing you'll hear big businesses say: so mm. if you're meeting with, sometimes I I'm, I'm speaking to a group of you know big Fortune 500 CEOs, and they'll mm. they'll ask me they'll say, Ovic, oh why is it that nobody trusts us to? to be the purchases of health insurance. We mm-hmm. spend more on health care than anybody else mm-hmm. in terms of uh, of buying the buying the actual mm-hmm. health insurance or buying the health care. <clears throat> we have an incentive mm-hmm. to keep health costs down because that keeps our mm-hmm. bottom lines healthier. So why don't people realize that we have this powerful economic incentive to, uh, to keep health care costs low? And what I explain to them is that's not actually accurate. Mm-hmm. That's not your number one incentive mm-hmm. with health care. Care. Your number one incentive with healthcare is not to make your employees mad. Mm. It's to make them feel like they have to stay at your company and not (laughs) go somewhere else. If you talk to any HR department, any big company, they'll tell you that that's what they use health insurance for as a retention tool. Mm. And so when you use healthcare as a retention tool, you don't fight hard on cost Mm -hmm. because fighting hard on cost means saying, if you're a Boston based company, well, maybe we don't go to the Harvard hospitals, we go mm-hmm. to the, the Tufts hospitals mm-hmm. instead, which are sort of the second tier hospitals mm-hmm. in, in the Boston area. Or, or you know, you, you basically, and then the workers get mad and say, wait a minute, like I pay for this insurance and I can't go to Brigham and Women's Hospital mm-hmm. or Mass General Hospital, the big Harvard affiliate hospitals. And they get mad and then the employer gets afraid and says, no, 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 it's fine. Mm-hmm. And that means Harvard knows this, mm-hmm. Mass General knows this and they can charge more <laughs> knowing that they have you over a barrel because you're afraid to lose them mm-hmm. as a partner right? And so that's one of the biggest distortions. So it's a double distortion. It's a distortion Mm -hmm. you talked about where people are afraid to leave their job, Mm -hmm. and it's the distortion of employers being cowardly about negotiating a good deal for their workers when it comes to health benefits because they're so afraid that if that hospital walks away or that prestigious doctor walks away that their employees get mad no one is ever going to be a better steward of your money than you are. Mm. And so when the employer is shopping for your coverage and not you, there's a fundamental conflict of interest Mm. in how they want to spend your money rather than you. And so uh, that's one of the things why this this Trump rule that I was mentioning before Mm. about giving you the dollars to shop for your own coverage but preserving the tax break is a very important incremental step towards a fairer system where you control the dollars and therefore you can be a better steward for the healthcare choices that you need to make.
0: Yeah, indeed. Uh, So what what are some ways in which um, the money flowing through the system? Like one of the big frustrations for me is that there just seem to be so many rent seekers along the way, right? Like people that are extracting, you know, rent from this process without really adding anything. So think about like, you know, the insurance bureaucrat or something like that. I, at least when I was working at Athena Health, one of the one of the big statistics that I would hear often is, you know, a third of healthcare costs is administrative. It's not to, you know, pay the doctor or medical equipment or anything. It's some paper pusher that gets money because they're sitting in some bureaucratic job that uh, you know that that they have to do um that seems like a very you know low-hanging fruit that that somehow like isn't getting arbed out somehow like what what's going on um
1: administrative costs aren't always bad mm-hmm. so you think about a bank mm. uh, if the bank didn't have security guards, mm. it would have lower administrative costs, <laughs> but then it would get robbed more often, right? So we wouldn't want that. Mm. So similarly, there is an appropriate level of uh, mm-hmm. administrative costs. Say, if an insurance company has claims adjudicators to say, mm. "Okay, is there some fraud going on at this mm-hmm. doctor's office where they're, um, you know, making up social security numbers and mm-hmm. and billing us for that when that isn't a real patient?" Um, you know, you do want a certain amount of administrative costs to to mm-hmm. to root out that to verify, not to trust. verify <laughs> exactly, um, and and so 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 not all administrative costs are bad. But having said that, you're absolutely right that the scale or proportion of administrative costs in healthcare is unnecessarily high mm-hmm. because of this insulation from market forces. Mm-hmm. We also see it in higher ed. So you think about how the inflation in college tuition is a lot like the inflation in healthcare it's mm-hmm. like you know when cpi is 2% <laughs> inflation in college tuition and healthcare is like 6% or mm-hmm. 8% mm-hmm. you know it's obviously much worse now or well covid's a bit of a, a, mm-hmm. a strange case but as we go forward we should be very worried about that and so why is it that college tuition keeps going up a very similar problem which is we've heavily subsidized student loans mm. And we say that if you default on your student loans, the taxpayer will pick up the tab. Mm-hmm. And so the end result is the colleges know they can increase their prices because you as a student don't pay it. You're borrowing the money <laughs> and you don't understand as a kid, like why does, mm-hmm. does this actually matter that I'm borrowing the money or not? And you wake up one day and you have $200,000 of debt mm. and you can't afford it. So you default and the taxpayer pays the bill. Like that is a, recipe for incentivizing colleges to raise prices, because they're not accountable for the prices they charge. They're not competing with any other college on the basis of price. And so what do they do with all that extra money? They hire assistant deputy deans of random things, right? <laughs> so if you look at the explosion of uh, of spending in the higher education sector, it's almost, uh, I wouldn't say it's all for, for administrators, but certainly the... the the lion's share of the growth is in administrative jobs, not in faculty or teaching. Mm. Uh, so healthcare is similar in that there's all this fat in the system that grows from this mm-hmm. this cycle of being insulated from um, from the consequences of raising prices, and so you create all this extra administrative bloat as a result. Mm. So it's a problem. Um, but I, I would I would just caution against making the uh, not that you did, but mm-hmm. some people do. Some people make the argument that well, we should have no administrative costs, <laughs> and the answer is no. Like there is a, there is an appropriate role for for overhead. I mean, I mm-hmm. run a think tank. Um, uh, not if, if you if you donate to to free up, not every dollar goes to research. Some of it mm-hmm. goes to. Uh, the communications people who Mm -hmm. blast out Presley, some of it goes to uh, our finance team that manages the books. Like It's not just purely the research. right? There are Mm -hmm. overhead costs in any business. And so uh, that's true in healthcare and and that's true in a lot of other things. Mm
0: -hmm. All right. Well, so let's shift uh, more towards Bitcoin. What what do you think Bitcoin can do to help this very, very broken system? (laughs) Because at least in my opinion it's uh it's way too much cost for way too little benefit for the vast majority of people there's a few people you know especially as you hinted that are at the edges where you need uh you know significant innovation in order for them to continue living and things like that and you know those people i think are decently served but for the rest of us especially for those of us that don't go to the doctor very often or whatever we're completely getting screwed like what what what's a way in which Bitcoin sort of helps in this area?
1: Well, I think the most important uh, and attractive opportunity in the near term mm. is simply to be able to save in Bitcoin. Mm. Like you can obviously save in Bitcoin today, mm. but imagine a world in which not only can you save in Bitcoin today uh, the, way we, the, the way that all of us do who, who have mm. some, but imagine a world in which things like health savings accounts, which are tax advantaged, mm. can be places where you save in in a way that's Bitcoin denominated, mm. maybe you're 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 saving directly in you know uh, spot Bitcoin as we mm. might call it, or maybe it's some um, you know ETF like asset because of just the rules that exist today. Uh, but the point is like you should you know if, if you're able to do that, if you're able to save in a tax advantaged account for your own health expenditures in Bitcoin, mm. and imagine a world where you could use that money and spend it like you do an ATM card, which you know that mm-hmm. technology obviously already exists. Then that's a world in which, uh, instead of having health savings accounts and other instruments in USD or in fiat, you could do it in Bitcoin. That's mm. one uh, interesting opportunity that is starting to emerge in in, in very early stage uh, work. But I think that's that's the um, that's one. Mm. I think the other big area of where uh, Bitcoin interacts with healthcare is what we alluded to earlier on, which is this fiscal mm. component, mm. where Uh, If Bitcoin continues to grow at its historic rate, Mm. let's say at some point in the future, the market value of all the Bitcoin in the world is $10 trillion or $20 Mm. trillion instead of $1 trillion, give Mm. or take, then uh, that's a world in which there is a competitor to the treasury bond Mm. as a store of value. Mm. And once there's a competitor to this treasury bond as a store of value, that's effectively a forcing mechanism for the US government to reform healthcare because that's a driver of the deficit and the debt. Mm. So the that's sort of a, a kind of a, in a sense, a, an end around or a bank shot. But it may be that Bitcoin ends up creating the impetus mm. for us to finally confront the reasons why our healthcare system is so unaffordable and reform it in a way that's more affordable. But I'd say in the short term, the immediate application of Bitcoin in healthcare is you know, many people have health savings accounts now, mm-hmm. more people will in the future. Even if you don't have a health savings account, deductibles for the health insurance you get through your employer, are, are, are those deductibles are rising, mm-hmm. meaning the amount of money you have to pay before your insurance kicks in. Mm-hmm. And so being able to save for that is mm-hmm. very important. Mm-hmm. And so imagine if there was a health insurer, leaving aside some of the alternative models that are not health insurance, Imagine if your health insurance allowed you to pay that deductible in Bitcoin mm-hmm. or your providers, really. Actually, it's the providers, mm-hmm. the, the hospital, the doctor. Mm-hmm. And again, you can do that today with strike and other things. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be like the, the hospital doesn't even have to accept Bitcoin, right? Mm-hmm. It can be a lightning network transaction that mm-hmm. just like when I, I was in Europe last week and I used my American credit cards to mm-hmm. pay for things. and theory, technically, I'm paying in euros, but I don't care. It's just a credit <laughs> card. I put it down and they they, they charge it, right? Mm-hmm. And my credit card statement back home is in USD. So similarly... Um, as a medium of exchange, uh, I think the ability to use Bitcoin uh, uh, to deploy your saved Bitcoin as a medium of exchange is, is increasingly easy because mm. of the the, the the solutions that people are building. So the real question is not using Bitcoin as in order to spend it, but rather can you use it to save? Because that's mm. really Bitcoin's killer app is mm. as a store of value, as a medium mm. of exchange. It's useful in that realm, but I, I actually don't think in the 21st century, medium of exchange matters as much because of technology. Mm-hmm. I think store of value matters a lot more, um, and that's where saving for your future health needs, mm-hmm. saving for your future life needs, is where mm-hmm. Bitcoin is, can be really important.
0: Yeah, I, I like this idea of sort of uh, saving, and then you know, sort of having a closed system. Right, right, right. Now it's this huge system where everybody pays for everybody else, and of course, there are going to be winners and losers in that that sort of scenario. Whereas if we're saving for ourselves and have this very, you know, like within our family or something like that, then then it makes a lot more sense. And you, you're not borrowing from the future or borrowing from, uh, you know, people that are healthy or something like that in order to pay for everybody else. And that's what I find just patently unfair. And it's it's yeah. it's just so wrong that uh, the way the system works just advantages people that honestly didn't put very much money into the system. Whereas, you know, people like me, people like you, you know, like, especially people that are young right now, they're gonna put enormous amounts of money into the system and probably get very little out, um, even with accelerating technological upgrades and things like that. The
1: technology isn't saving money in healthcare Mm -hmm. because the incentive is in the other direction. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, when when we were kids, Mm -hmm. there used to be all these stories in the newspaper about the, the six thousand dollar toilet seat that the <laughs> Pentagon had to buy because, and and the thing that they would explain is like, look, it's a customized toilet seat uh-huh. for a particular kind of fighter uh-huh. jet or whatever, uh, and and so that's why the toilet seat costs six thousand dollars, but it's also the cronyism of government contract. In mm-hmm. the fact, mm-hmm. there's no market, right? It's mm-hmm. just like you're buying a custom built product; they can charge whatever they want, mm-hmm. and 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 healthcare is a lot like that, and it it, it it's it's a big problem, and and so. Um, there's, it, it's the people who are getting, you know, I think on the right among libertarians even there's sometimes this um, intuition that the problem with healthcare today is is that you know we subsidize it for lower income people too much, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the 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 answer is actually the truth is actually the opposite. We subsidize it for rich people too much. Mm. You and I pay income taxes so that. Warren Buffett and Mitt <laughs> Romney and Hillary Clinton and George Soros can get government subsidized health insurance. Mm. That's crazy. Mm. Like we should, if we're gonna subsidize people, we should subsidize people who truly need the help. People on the bottom end of the income scale, people who have real existing health needs and can't afford their medical bills, people who really need that help. Ronald Reagan, actually, you know, uh, who people think of as this kind of hardcore libertarian guy mm-hmm. on, on economics. He said in the '60s, you know, like actually, I want everyone who can't afford health care to be able to get get it, and if, mm-hmm. we, if we need to spend some money to do that, that's okay. But he didn't want a system in which, and this is was his objection to Medicare, he didn't want a system in which everybody got a subsidy regardless of their ability to pay. Mm. That's that creates massive distortions, right? So, so the 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 thing I would say is, if you want to make Government smaller in terms of the healthcare system. The way to do it is to make it more progressive, mm. by which I mean subsidize, ends the subsidies for rich people and the subsidies for upper middle class people who can afford their own healthcare. Mm. And guess what? Even if that means you still have a subsidized system to a degree, mm. for that slice of the market, it's completely unsubsidized, mm. which also allows it to be less regulated, mm. which also allows it to be more innovative which then filters into the rest of the system, mm. right? So create again an enclave, a sandbox, a, uh, a, an open space for competition, innovation, and markets to work. Mm. And those innovations, those technologies, those services then become uh, uh, available to everyone. Mm. Like the old brick cell phones from the, the, the 80s that were like this big, and now <laughs> we have these tiny little things that are a million times more powerful, right? Like. The problem with technology and healthcare is like the $6,000 toilet seat, um, a new invention comes and it actually costs more Mm. than the old healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Like a new drug comes along and even if you account for the fact that you stay out of the hospital because you take the drug, the drug actually costs more than what you save from those Mm. uh, days in hospital. That's actually the deliberate pricing strategy (laughs) of the drug company and they have a monopoly a government-enforced monopoly through patents where mm-hmm. they can say we can charge whatever i want mm-hmm. medicare will pay for it so they get a subsidy they get to treat the taxpayer like an atm it's a completely a uh, distorted system mm-hmm. and so te- i think there are a lot of tech entrepreneurs you know mm-hmm. and, and athena health was certainly mm-hmm. one of the good guys in this mm-hmm. regard and, and and still is that tries to reduce the cost of healthcare care through innovation and technology but the vast majority of quote-unquote innovation in healthcare makes a system more expensive because of these distortions that we talked about before.
0: Yeah, that that's interesting what you said about like drug companies pricing strategy basically to uh, to use the Medicare system as an ATM because they have a drug and it's like, what's, what's a fair price to pay for it? And right. it's like, well, what's the alternative if you don't have it? Right. Whatever that is, we're going to charge one dollar less than that, and you're saving a dollar. So therefore, you have to pay us, and uh, and then it becomes uh, such you know like with Medicare and so on, where they have to pay, and it seems completely you know immoral to not pay, and you know who cares if we're printing trillions of dollars in order to you know uh, fund all this, but they they. Uh, the whole system seems jacked up because of this you know release valve that we always have of the Fed printing more money. Yeah and
1: that's the dangerous thing, right is that uh, uh, we think that we the party will go on forever and we mm. can just keep the system the way it is and we're uh, we're seeing the first signs of why that's not the case. I mean there were signs all along, but mm. I mean I think the average person is seeing signs that this is not sustainable now and, it's gonna be very, very difficult to unwind. And again, the only I think I think the most uh viable, politically plausible way to do it is to create these incremental opportunities. Medicare Advantage is a great example. Mm-hmm. Or another another way to think about it is 401ks. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a, a law passed, I think, in 1986 that effectively created what we now think of as the modern 401k retirement plan, tax advantage. And it started off slow, like only a few people used in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And now it's like a default thing that a lot of people use, right? And and that took several decades to to play out. And so similarly here, I think those—that's uh, uh, not the only—I mean, we don't have a lot of time, right? Mm. Like, we don't have 20 <laughs> years to solve the problem because in 10 years, we're going to be paying more in interest on the federal debt than we pay for national defense.
2: Mm.
1: So we don't have 20 years to, like, gradually do everything. Mm. But I'd say at the very least, you can start with that. And mm. I think you do have to address these more— fundamental issues. And I think a part of uh, what we try to do is develop the idea as fully as it can, brief as many members of Congress as you can, as many people in the White House, politicians, media people, think tankers, academics, like, Mm -hmm. you know, spread the word about it in the public as well, so that when the crisis happens, Mm -hmm. the plan is there, it can be pulled off the shelf, people are familiar enough with it, they can, that they feel comfortable using it. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what you want. Uh, you want to basically have it ready so that when the crisis comes, it can be used, and that's that's I think the the best case scenario, the positive case scenario that we're trying to build for.
0: Well, so that there's a little contradiction there, right? Because a- as you said, it takes you know decades, oftentimes, for these policies to actually have the effect that you're looking for, and uh, and even if you get to this point of crisis, it's like okay, now you're going to have to wait 20 years for this to like trickle through the market like the savings isn't, I, I don't know if any of these things are fast enough, uh, especially given, uh, you know, the cost ballooning and everything else. Um, like what can we do in the meantime? Like how do, how do we prep for, I, I guess, the inevitable collapse of the healthcare industrial complex? Well, um, uh, the, the, in a sense,
1: you could argue the most likely outcome is price controls, mm. right? That, because the market-based solutions take longer to get there, mm. to get to the right place, to the right endpoint, the faster, quick fix solution, quote-unquote fix, mm. is to just say we're going to do what we did in World War II. We're going <laughs> to we're going to have price controls. We're going to say this is how much you charge for knee replacement. Uh-huh. A lot of European countries do it that way, and so we can just look to their models and say, "Or Canada, so that's what we're going to do." And, uh, that's going to be the, the, that's certainly the solution that's already, if you think Mm -hmm. about the public option, that's what effectively Mm -hmm. a public option is. It's basically a government insurance plan in which the control prices are all controlled. Mm. So that's, um, that's a model that's out there. That's a model that, that a lot of people believe in and, uh, could in the short term have the effect desired effect of just getting the spending Mm -hmm. lower Mm. it obviously would create other distortions, but, uh, but that is, that's the alternative. And I Mm. think that, um, Uh, So the way I think about it and the way I I pitch is have the plan ready so that if we Mm -hmm. get to that debate where, Mm -hmm. you know, there is a potential majority in Congress and or in the public Mm -hmm. for price controls that we say, hey, you know, here's a way to accelerate Mm -hmm. what we've described uh, in a way that solves the problem faster. If Mm -hmm. you really are if you really don't like price controls as your other option Mm -hmm. and 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 go there, I mean, it, it, there's not a lot of great choices. It's kind of like uh, it's kind of like the the Bitcoin world. Right? It's like we say, you know, some of us sort of cheer on. Oh yes, we're uh-huh. gonna displace a dollar, and it's mm-hmm. gonna be great, and there's gonna be this glorious new world in which Bitcoin is the world reserve currency. And I think we don't think hard enough about if that happens. And mm-hmm. I certainly believe that will happen at at some point. There's a lot of dislocation for the people who didn't, mm-hmm. who were not the early adopters, mm-hmm. right? They're gonna be left behind, and that's gonna create a lot of social dislocation, potentially social unrest, a lot of danger for society. Healthcare is similar in that respect in that there's, um, you know, the problems are hard to solve politically. They do require Congress to pass laws. It's not something that can entirely be solved by tech Mm. or innovation uh, because there are certain structures in place that create the problem of government overspending. So you have to pass laws to change it and you can't pass laws without politicians having the will to change it and also the public supporting the changes because if the public doesn't support the changes the politicians aren't going to do it Mm. so it's um it's a big job Mm. but that's why we started free because you know at the end of the day uh we wanted to solve the hard problems we wanted Mm. to you know uh you know we were talking about this today at at a meeting we had um, actually with some of my board members uh, we were going through one of our pitch decks and Mm. You know, one of the things we get asked a lot when we when we um, when we try to raise money or, or pitch people on to support our work, they say, "Well, wait, so you want to reform the healthcare system and solve entitlements? That's pretty hard, isn't it?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, it's hard, but you know what's even harder? Thinking that we're going to survive the status quo, mm. right? If we just kind of if we if we nibble at the margins and let the system broadly go on as it is, I guarantee you, our kids are not going to grow up in a solvent country." Mm. That's a lot harder to me than trying to solve the problem. Mm. Right. So, yes, what we're trying to do is hard, but the alternatives are harder or worse in terms of the future of the country. And that's why we've got to work on it.
0: Mm. Wow. What a sobering way to end it. (laughs) 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 All right. So, uh, uh, Ovik, where can people find you? Where can people contact you?
1: Well, our, our work is at uh, freeop.org, F-R-E-O-P-P dot O-R-G, uh, and we're, we're also on uh, social media, you know, facebook.com slash freeop, twitter slash freeop. My personal Twitter account is A-V-I-K, just my first name. Uh, that's where uh, you'll often find me tweeting about all sorts of different things, uh, <laughs> including Bitcoin. Thank you. Thanks,
0: Jimmy. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi sig collaborative custody or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at unchain.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Ovik can be found at, at AVIK on Twitter and FREOPP.org. Until next time, fiat, they'll invest.